So I am joined here with uh, Dr. Dan McCannon, who is the Ralph Waldo Emerson Unitarian Universalist Senior Lecturer at Harvard Divinity School, who is also my professor of UU History and Theology when I was at seminary. Hey, Dan. Hey, Sean. It is wonderful to be with you and with everybody there in Fort Collins. Yeah, it's great to have you. The service that we're in this Sunday is entitled Genesis of an Uprising. The reason I thought of bringing you into a conversation, Dan, was because of an earlier book that you wrote, which is Prophetic Encounters, which kind of charts this relationship between our religion and the kind of American radical progressive tradition that spans both a political and a religious dimension. And, you know, so I'm curious as, as kind of a historian and a, and a theologian, and this is the question that I've been asking a lot of people, at, you know, as the election results have become clear and as we've, you know, been kind of metabolizing the last four years, kind of what is the crossroads that you feel like we're at? Yeah, I like the word crossroads because I think in a sense, uh, the crossing uh, that we've been at for the past four years is a crossing of two kind of long-term historical trajectories. One of them is extremely long-term. It is the 500-year history of settler colonialism and white supremacy in North America, the process by which my ancestors, I believe your ancestors, Sean, the ancestors of many of you, not all, who are listening to this process by which our ancestors claimed the land and labor of other people in ways that have been foundational for the long story of the United States. And in many generations, ours among them, people rise up seeking to come to terms uh, with these legacies and to see if it is possible to create a different future, often by creatively revisioning traditions that are themselves shot through with white supremacy, as Martin Luther King, for example, did in claiming uh, the ideals of the American Revolution as for a vision of universal human rights that the revolutionary founders had not, in fact, envisioned. So that's the 500-year current that is crossing with the 50-year current of increasing economic inequality in this country that came after a previous 50 years of increasing economic equality. So roughly from uh, this time 100 years ago until the 1960s, people in this country first restricted to white people, but more racially inclusive in the 1960s, gained greater economic freedom and power uh, as the, the privileges of capital were worn away by the New Deal and the Great Society. And then with the resurgence of neoliberal uh, economics and a politics of austerity, uh, we've seen increasing economic inequality and particularly a bifurcation of privilege in this country where coastal urban communities uh, that are well connected and benefit from the globalization of the economy have prospered and heartland communities have really suffered. And I think our failure to come to terms with these two things simultaneously uh, with the 500 years of white supremacy and the current trend of inequality that means that most people under 40 cannot expect to live as prosperous lives as their parents enjoyed means that we have great potential to chart a new path, but also as we've seen great potential for fascist uprising uh, when some of the victims 
uh, of increasing inequality take their pain and anguish out not on the globalizing elites, uh, but on their fellow sufferers who are black or brown. So we're in this series here at Foothills called Moments and Movements, in which we're like we're tracking how like how do we stay present to the moment, which can be overwhelming. There's so many inputs, so much that goes on in our lives. And how do we find those movements that are those movements of love in the world, those greater movements that we can be a part of? And how are those two connected? You think that in any moment, it's difficult to understand if this moment is going to be a watershed moment or not. You know, George Floyd's death was, again, another, you know, uh, watershed moment that invited people in, but he was not the first and will not be the last you know, person of color killed by police in this way. And there's been, you know, decades and centuries of that, and, and some of them can coalesce and catalyze movement, and some of them don't. What do you see as those catalysts for the for a moment becoming more than itself, more than just an isolated something? I think one of the paradoxes of of social change movements is that the big flashy headline grabbing moments always build on decades of patient, inconspicuous, marginalized preparation. There's always kind of a disconnect or a leap between the preparation and the moment. So a great example would be the practice of sitting in for civil rights. In the 1930s, a number of socialist pacifists, both black and white in the United States, came to realize that it was going to be impossible to build a socialist society, a beloved community in the US, as long as the legacy of white supremacy remained unchallenged. That fighting patterns of segregation and racial oppression was a prerequisite to creating an economically equal society. And they were very inspired by the work of Mohandas Gandhi in India. And so they began using Gandhian techniques to challenge segregation in Northern cities, New York, Chicago. Uh, these people created an organization called the Congress of Racial Equality. And they patiently created very balanced, half-white, half-black groups of people who would go to segregated skating rinks or restaurants and so forth, really building up uh, a repertoire of skills for how you use Gandhian techniques uh, to fight racism in this country. They sensed, I think, that they weren't going to be able to do this in the Jim Crow South unless they first uh, kind of perfected the techniques in northern cities. So by the time uh, you get to 1960, you have this great reservoir of Gandhian insight uh, and wisdom. And because of the Montgomery bus boycott, people are aware that it's a moment where Gandhian techniques can come south and be transformative. And so in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, a fellow named James Lawson, who had studied with Gandhi, um, uh, been very active in this kind of Gandhian work in the North, came to Nashville, Tennessee, began working cluster of students at Fisk, the local uh, black college, uh, elite black college, and um, the not so elite black Baptist seminary where young John Lewis was a student. And they worked out an elaborate strategy for how they were going to mobilize students uh, to fight segregation in Nashville. And they had their plan, they had their spiritual practices, everything was ordered. They knew exactly what they were doing. And before they did it, a group of young people in North Carolina who had 
seen a little bit about Gandhian activism on television, but we're not connected in any direct way to these decades of movement building, did the same thing first. There was a moment that the, the longstanding planners could not have predicted. And it relied on the fresh energy of people who hadn't been planning, but were spontaneously reacting to a form of oppression that had become intolerable for them. But ultimately both parts were key to the long-term success of the movement because those two groups of people, the highly prepared Nashvillians and the much more spontaneous folks in North Carolina did come together to create the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and really uh, build a transformative national movement. It also makes me think about where it can be easy when we look at historical social change movements to, to isolate them or, or yeah. kind of monolize them. Like, oh, well, there was, the, there was the women's suffrage movement. And then there was like the civil rights movement as if they were a, like one homogenous group of people with one set of tactics and one set of talking points, um, which is not true. The diversity within them was massive, but also the interconnection between social movements yeah, I think one of the most dangerous half-truths uh, for progressives today is the idea that identity politics, which is to say organizing that starts with people's particular experience of oppression, divides the left or divides progressive impulses. There is a, there's a lot of historical evidence just the opposite is the case. When the Black Power movement crystallized in the late 1960s, it inspired a whole host of kindred uh, identity-based uprisings among Chicanos, among women, first gay, then lesbian, then a more holistic queer community. And these movements have continually learned from one another, challenged one another in ways that have been fruitful you know, I suppose, I suppose a related error is the idea the difficulty or tension means things are going badly. When women of color called out the predominantly white second wave feminist movement for their unexamined privilege, I think a lot of people nowadays read that as evidence that second wave feminism was somehow flawed in its, its essence, when in fact, the womanist challengers wouldn't have wasted their time challenging second wave white feminists if they hadn't seen those other women as doing work that needed to be done and that could be done better if the people involved in it were held accountable. You know, so whenever we find the need to challenge one another, and this is happening, you know, so many different ways in Unitarian Universalism, uh, um, whether we're the ones issuing the challenge um, or the ones receiving the challenge, I think we can think of the challenge as a way of being faithful to the best self of the person on the other side and not as a way of drawing a distinction or a wall. We're past the time that, I, uh, that we set. So I appreciate the conversation, Dan, uh, and your contributions to, to our movement. Uh, thank you. Truly. Thank you so much for having me part of your conversation and having heard, you know, these really challenging searching questions, Sean. I'm sure that the, the resulting dialogue will be really rich. Thank you so much for making me. Right. Thank you.